When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast... I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. In today's episode, we're going to look at the subject of poison and poisoners. Joining me in this discussion is an old friend. Hello there. I'm David Charnick. I am a qualified City of London tour guide, but I also guide a fair bit in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, where I've lived all my life. And I also teach tour guiding through the local authority, the council. Hi, David. Nice to see you again. Thanks very much, Derek. It's good to see you again, as always. Now, today, I would like to talk about poison. Mm -hmm. Now, in my mind, poisoning is a crime committed by rich Victorian women against their erstwhile or wandering husband or whatever the case may be. I suppose sometimes wandering husband, probably more normally richer husband, um, you know, wanting to get her hands on his stash or indeed wanting to get her own money back. Because in the Victorian period, even that late, a woman's property was a husband's property until such time as, you know, they got divorced or she was widowed. Am I right in my assumption that it was a crime committed mainly by women? Not exclusively, no. I mean, there are cases, of course, where women wanted to get rid of their husbands and normally, uh, in order that you didn't excite suspicion, this would be gradual. So you'd start with a low-level dose of something like arsenic or cyanide and then you would build it up over time. And then when the fatal dose was administered, the symptoms were already expressing themselves and so nobody was surprised. Was arsenic the main poison used, the only poison used, or what other options were there? Well, your main options really were arsenic or cyanide or prussic acid. Uh, but there were a wide variety of noxious substances and toxic substances available increasingly during the Victorian period, and that's when poisoning becomes more prevalent. Why was that? A variety of reasons, really, but principally because of the availability of toxic substances over the counter. Uh, legislation was very slow to catch up with the variety of things that you could buy. Industrial processes were requiring more uh, chemicals and this was leading to the manufacture 
of things like uh, dyes and paints and so on, uh, rat poison, of course, and very similar domestic products, which had very toxic substances in them, but could be bought quite easily over the counter. And so poison was available more readily for anyone who wanted to exact a bit of revenge or get a bit of freedom or something. And sadly, often these cases were children. Oh, wow. Can you give me some individual cases so I can sort of learn more about the administration of poison? Oh, certainly. Um, What may come as a bit of a shock was that in 1873, a 12-year-old boy called William Hinchcliffe decided to poison his teacher by adding noxious substances to the teacher's nerve tonic. Incredible. Tell me more. He was called William Hinchcliffe and he was at the East London Industrial School. This was down the bottom of Mansell Street, so leading south from Aldgate, getting down to Goodman's Fields. And this was an establishment that took in um, juvenile offenders, for instance, that kind of thing. But also, over time, they started taking in vagrant children, homeless children, and also ones that were proving uh, too difficult for their families. They needed to be taught a bit of discipline. But also they taught them, apart from a rudimentary education, practical skills like making things such as ink or paper bags or brushes and so on. So they were a very positive establishment. Anyway, coming back to William Hinchcliffe, his teacher was a man called John Bowden. And Bowden uh, seemingly was getting a bit on edge in his job because he actually kept a bottle of nerve tonic in the cupboard where the children's slippers were. So all the children knew where this bottle of tonic was and it contained various sort of analgesic substances, you know, to take the edge off. So clearly he was finding it uh, a bit of a trial on his nerves. And maybe that's why he was giving all this harsh discipline to William Hinchcliffe. Uh, He would pull him off the chair by his ear and stuff like that. And Hinchcliffe clearly had enough. So he decided to do something about it. So he started adding stuff to the bottle of tonic. Was this over a period of time? It wasn't all at once. It was over a couple of weeks. I mean, a couple of his fellow pupils said that, first of all, he put this clear fluid in the bottle and one of them said it's what you wash your eyes with so presumably it was uh, some kind of eye drops with um, I think uh, valerian I think goes in eye drops which is quite poisonous Um, and so he put that in there and when Bowden had his dose of tonic he said afterwards that it had tasted a bit more bitter than it usually did but otherwise there were no effects So Hinchcliffe decided to up the ante a bit and he sent a boy out. So this is another 12-year-old boy uh, called Loughton. He sent him out to buy some white powder. And the other two children, they thought it was citric acid that you make lemonade with. But it was actually a compound of mercury and chlorine and ammonia and potentially fatal. And he just 
popped it in the bottle. And basically what he was doing was just he kept adding things to the bottle and waiting for some some kind of result. Do you think he was definitely trying to kill him or just to sort of upset his system? We don't know. He doesn't really sort of say what his motivation was. Um, well, his motivation, obviously, was to get some revenge, but what his intention was. So it's quite possible he just didn't really understand because when he was confronted, he just put his hands up straight away. Oh, yeah, I've been putting stuff in there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> totally unrepentant. Uh, and that's the thing. You know, he's t- so young. He doesn't understand the enormity of what he was doing. How did he get caught? He got caught after he put the the white powder in the tonic because Belden had a dose of the tonic after the powder had been put in and he had a sort of burning feeling in the mouth and a dry mouth and so on. And he thought, well, this is strange. I've not had this before from the tonic. So he had a look at it and there was this white scum on the top of the fluid so he took it to the school superintendent who said, no, this needs checking up. And he took it to a local doctor, Dr. Sequira, who keeps appearing in a number of the criminal cases. He was uh, uh, attached to the police. He was a police doctor. And Sequira analysed it and found out, as I say, it was this mercury compound which could have killed the teacher. I mean, Sequira in court said, oh, no, it wasn't fatal. But in those days, they didn't quite understand that mercury was fatal. It was only later on that uh, it was established to be a toxic substance. So, yeah. So what was the outcome of this particular crime? Do we know what happened to the accused and to the We do. We do. He was sent to the Feltham Reformatory for three years. So um, now... Feltham Reformatory was the original reformatory and what they did is they used to do all these outward bound things with the kids and they used to give them various trainings and tasks and so on. They even had a a ship called the Endeavour. It was a brig, uh, which was an educational tool. And so they used to do all sorts of things to sort of wake the kids up to mature them, you know, and uh, and to, to get them out, give them some exercise, give them a sense of responsibility and activity. So Hinchcliffe probably ended up better off than he would have been if he'd stayed where he was. Oh, fascinating, absolutely, because it's just something that you don't imagine, a 12-year-old trying to poison their teacher. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, in the 1840s, uh, Punch magazine, which was... At the time, it was like Private Eye is now, a satirical magazine. And it had a cartoon in it. And the cartoon was headed um, Fatal Facility or Poison for the Asking. And you've got this little girl in a shop standing at the counter holding up her money and the shopman holding out this bundle of goods and each product is labelled with the name of a toxic substance. The fact that children could go into uh, chemists or paint shops or oil shops and just buy stuff that would kill people. Incredible. Now, obviously, autopsies and um, other examinations of of deceased bodies would have Mm. taken place. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, What you would do, essentially what you do now, is you you take... um, a sample from different organs and you see how much of the substance is in there and then you sort of back calculate, you know, it's been in there for so long so so much would have been ingested, so uh, what was the original dose? Uh, 
Yeah. Oh, so these poisonings wouldn't have been sort of one into a glass and that's the person gone. It would have been over a period of time. Oh, yes. Well, the the more deliberate ones, yes, like William Hinchcliffe, as I say, he he seems to have been quite happy to keep going on adding stuff. So if he hadn't had something as deadly as the mercury compound, if he'd had something less fatal or less injurious, then the teacher might have had other effects that could have been put down maybe to nerves or something. And then Hinchcliffe would have sent another kid out to buy something else and just keep going. He seems to have been prepared just to keep adding stuff until something happened. A bit like Buckaroo, you keep taking bits off the donkey and eventually it jumps. (laughs) Have you got any other interesting stories of poison tales to regale me with? The thing about poison is it wasn't always deliberate. And there's a story concerned with the Whitechapel Pavilion Theatre. Now, this was a theatre on the Whitechapel Road, just east of Valance Road. So if anyone knows the area, you've got Valance Road coming down from the north, New Road coming up from the south, and it makes a crossroads. And just to the west of that, there's a a patch of derelict ground. It's still empty, which is surprising, considering how close to the city it is, that it's actually still empty. So we're talking very close to Royal London Hospital. Uh, just down the road from there, yeah. yeah, to the west of there, yeah. And that's where the Pavilion Theatre used to stand, which was a okay. big uh, big attraction in the Victorian period. I think it was the 1920s or 30s that it last was used, and then it stood derelict for a few decades and then was demolished. But there was an actor who you know, obviously appeared in various uh, places, but he seemed to light the pavilion and his name was James Elphinstone and he was happily married man had kids and so on but he had a stalker and her name was Martha Sharp now the thing about Martha is that she conceived this passion for Elphinstone and she wasn't going to give up so this is the summer of 1850 so Mm. about more than 20 years before uh, William Hinchcliffe's bit of trouble. And she had a friend called Mrs Holborough, who was the go-between. And so Martha Sharp and Mrs Holborough would sort of look out for Elphinstone. They knew where he went. They you know, knew where he was appearing and so on. And then Martha Sharp would stand at a little bit of a distance and Mrs Holborough would come up and say, Oh, Mr Elphinstone... Miss Sharp would like to take a walk with you and maybe a little conversation and things like that. And at one time uh, during the trial, when he's making his statements, he says how uh, he'd gone to a local pub near the theatre for a beer, so presumably the one that used to be the Black Bull, the other side of Valance Road. It's a curry house now. And he went up to the bar to get a beer, and then amongst the crowd, suddenly, it's Martha Sharp. And Mrs. Holborough and Mrs. Holborough came over. Miss Sharp would like to take some gin and water with you. <laughs> so he sort of beat a very hasty retreat. But the trouble was that Martha Sharp decided to up the ante, as it were, take a bit more direct action. And this is July 1850. She got a box at the theatre, you know, these sort of sideways on compartments and she's watching Elphinstone perform and at some point she left the box and she went and stood outside the stage door 
which presumably was on Valance Road or Baker's Row, as it was known then. And she hung around looking for someone to help her. And William Davis came along. He was a waiter from the King's Arms pub up the road. And she stopped him. And she gave him this paper bag and said, will you take this into the theatre to Mr Elphinstone? So he's a waiter. He's used to this sort of commission. And she probably gave him a coin or something. Um, So he took the paper bag and he took it through the stage door and to Elphinstone's dressing room. And Elphinstone's dresser, Thomas King, was there, you know, the man who helped him into his costumes and so on. And so Davis handed over the paper bag and uh, King took it. And when Elphinstone came off stage, he handed it over and inside was this big jam tart with a pastry lattice top. And... uh, Davis didn't know who the woman was who gave it to him, so he couldn't tell King, so King couldn't tell Elphinstone. But he probably worked out who sent it through. So he said, well, I'm not having it. He said, you take it, do what you want with it. So Thomas King took it home and gave it to his wife. And his wife had a little bit of the crust, and she thought, I don't really fancy it tonight, I'll have it tomorrow. So in the morning, she... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Almost finished it off except for a a round bit in the middle. Um, But the thing is, when Thomas King got up, um, you've got this little bit of this jam tart left, but his wife was vomiting and had these really serious abdominal pains. So um, 
Whether she sort of felt stable or what and thought that King had better keep his employer sweet, whatever the reason, he actually went to work and left her at home. And uh, he told Elphinstone about it. So Elphinstone called a doctor in and the doctor went to see her. And he examined the bit of tart. And the reason why she hadn't eaten that bit in the middle was there was green stuff under the jam. And the doctor examined it, and he found all these little bits of beetle. And you may have heard of something called Spanish fly. I have, Which is, yeah, uh, an aphrodisiac, or supposed aphrodisiac. Yes. Um, It's an extract from beetles, Cantarides beetles. And what it does is it sort of excites the, the blood and especially excites the genitals. It basically gives you an erection. Uh, but it doesn't give you any desire or anything. It's a purely physical thing. <clears throat> now, clearly she had heard about this, um, but didn't know enough. So what she'd done, instead of getting a bottle of Spanish fly, you know, the tincture and mixing in with the jam, she's just got a handful or whatever of these beetles and pounded them up to a pulp, got this tart, taken the lattice off the top, scraped the jam away from the middle and then spooned this stuff onto it and then put the jam over the top. So, <clears throat> presumably, she thought that Elphinstone would eat it and then suddenly become aroused and excited. And, and see uh, her in a new light, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As he came out the theatre, she'd be standing there and he'd think, oh, hang on a minute, you know. <laughs> but as I say, you know, he, he didn't want to know anyway. But um, the thing is, it nearly killed her. Because if you have a big enough dose of uh, cantaridin, which is what the substance you get from the beetles, it can actually remove the lining of your stomach. Oh, no, not a nice thing. No. Well, as you may know, your stomach is basically a bag of acid. Yeah. And, uh, and it keeps digesting its own lining, and it, so it generates new linings all the time. But this would strip the lining off, and basically the stomach would digest itself, and you would die. So Mr. Elphinstone had a very lucky escape, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah, extremely lucky escape. And it does show, though, how ignorance was to blame for a lot of poisonings or potential poisonings because she heard something about Spanish fly, but she didn't really know what it was. And clearly she thought, give him a good big yeah. dose and he'll get a, a, you know, a good big arousal, as it were. Was poisoning a class thing? I mean, was it the lower classes or the upper classes or who? Or was it just across the board? Well, it was largely across the board, but it depends what kind of poisoning. So, as I said earlier, with like rich wives and so on, or uh, wives who are suffering from domestic abuse or whatever and don't want to take direct action by stabbing him or something like that uh, it was a way of, of doing that and so you would have this measured approach um, so that would be probably more uh, sort of middle class and upwards because they would have access to uh, that kind of substance but it does go across the board Right. What about accidental poisoning? I mean, was it a case that um, food preservatives or something like that or whatever could could be the cause of the poisoning? Food preservatives or proof adulteration of food was very much to blame. Uh, there were various ways that people would, alter, would adulterate food, mainly because of the increased population densities of 
British cities with industrialization, you get an increased density of population, which means you get more demand for your products and you want that market. You don't want, see if you're a baker, say, you don't want other bakers to set up and take some of that market away. You want it. And so you start adding things like chalk and magnesium and so on to your flour to make it go further. And this could lead to accidental uh, poisonings. But there are also things like ignorance, basically. We have mentioned arsenic and the fact that arsenic was used as a food colouring to make things green. Um, And people didn't understand the dosages and so on, uh, not in the early part of the century anyway. And so through sheer ignorance, they would put this stuff in. Oh, it's readily available. It does the job. And then suddenly people start dying. So what? brought about the end of the heyday of poisoning and the poisoner? I don't know who had a heyday yet. I mean, there there are lots of tales of late 19th century and early 20th century poisonings. Um, And, I mean, that's murder. So, you know, what brings about the end of murder? Yeah, but I mean, it it, it does seem from my limited knowledge, that poisoning was certainly deemed to be a Victorian crime. I mean, as I said to you earlier, in my mind, it was committed mainly by women, but obviously you're showing me and you've proved to me that's not to the case, necessarily. Deliberate poisoning was usually seen to be the woman's recourse, mainly perhaps because the in earlier generations the woman was in a more domestic setting. And it's a less violent, supposedly a less violent type of crime. It is also, as you say, less violent, yes. I mean, for the male, you would be talking stabbings or shootings or that sort of thing or strangulation, whereas the woman would normally seen, uh, be seen to be the poisoner. But um, in terms of more general poisonings, you know, with toxic substances and that, legislation did come in, but it took its time. In 1851, if I remember rightly, you get the Arsenic Act because arsenic was becoming so widespread and was leading to so much, so much death, so many injuries and so So on. So prior to that act, people Mm. weren't necessarily aware of the potential of arsenic. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was used uh, indiscriminately. You know, it's quite possible that it could have been used in small doses, but people weren't that sort of yeah. finicky, you know, they'd oh, we'll just ladle it in. So what know. did the Act actually do? Well, basically, it just started regulating access to arsenic. But the trouble was, it was only arsenic. It wasn't until 1868 when you get the Pharmacy Act, and that actually specifies more what a pharmacy does and that kind of thing. And it regulated access to toxic substances. So what could and couldn't be sold to the general public and anything toxic, how you regulate the sale of it, what safeguards you uh, require, that sort of thing. But that was 1868. And the fact that William Hinchcliffe, three years later, could send out fellow school pupils to buy toxic substances shows that it wasn't immediately that effective. Yes, I can see where you're coming from with that one. And are there any other stories of um, individuals who got away with it? Who, who, you know, sort of, we know now committed the crime and spent many years poisoning people? Well, if someone had got away with it, we wouldn't know about them. Well, no, what I meant was who were caught at a later date, you know, mass poisoners who went on for a period of time. Oh, right, I see. Um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, there certainly would have been, but I haven't been able to find any connected with the East End. The the poison cases I've found there tend to be either through ignorance or through the malice of uh, people like William Hinchcliffe, children uh, exacting revenge on teachers or parents or what have you. The thing about poisoning, though, is we tend to think of it as just... You know, so I want to kill someone, so I put some poison there and that sort of thing. But a lot of poisoning cases were purely accidental. Like I've already mentioned Martha Sharp and the Cantarides uh, stuff. I mean, she incidentally was up on a charge of manslaughter. So it was understood that she hadn't intended to kill anyone. But she wasn't up on a charge of attempted manslaughter against Elphinstone. She was up on a charge of attempted uh, manslaughter on Thomas King's wife. Yeah, who was obviously the victim in the yeah, end. Absolutely. Yeah. And the court established that there's no way she could have known that Elphinstone wouldn't eat the tart, that he would give it to Thomas King, would give it to his wife. Yeah, so that's probably an example, really, of what my uh, earlier question was. People probably did get away with poisoning. Oh, in the sense that they were detected but not uh, executed or yes. given any other penal um, servitude. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, the case of uh, John Stevens comes to mind. Uh, he was a herbalist. He was a local herbalist down, at, um, down in Whitechapel. And he was responsible for the death of a young man called Henry Davis. And Henry Davis was, um, he was a young man, but he had uh, what we would call learning difficulties. Um, he was described when the manslaughter trial happened as being uh, idiotic, you know, in, in the medical sense, the idiot was someone who was mentally insufficient, incapable, right, yeah. and so on. Um, <clears throat> but he and his mum were living with a family uh, they were lodging with this couple and their children. Uh, but Henry Davis's mum was actually consigned to the workhouse for insanity. And so um, Davis was brought up by the Wanstalls, the family where they were lodging on Ratcliffe Highway. And they were herbalists. Well, they believed in, in herbal remedies, the Wanstalls, William and Elizabeth. And the trouble with Henry was he had trouble abdominally, particularly his bowels. And he would have abdominal cramps and he would have occasional constipation. And his mum would give him rhubarb to help clear the blockage, uh, but also uh, the occasional enema. But because the Wanstalls were believers in herbalism they persuaded her to start giving him this thing called composition powder. And this was this herbal remedy, a sort of cure-all, you know. And um, the defence in court later was that Elizabeth Wanstall says, well, it's never done me any harm and I've always given it to the children, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, yes, if it's appropriate. But the thing with Henry was that his condition was such that didn't actually help. And Do we know what this powder consisted of? 
What, what was the powder? What did it consist of? Oh, it was various um, things, including ginger and so on, that would stimulate the blood. Right. And astringents, you know, and it just made the blood flow more easily, basically. And the, that essentially was how it made you feel better because right. you got the blood circulating, the oxygen was getting throughout the body more quickly and was so there on. any chemicals in there that would be banned today for example that humans wouldn't consume there were no chemicals it was purely herbal right yeah uh, but the thing was um they the, the one stores they had to look after henry after his mum went into the workhouse and they started giving him this composition powder uh, when his bowels were playing up and it was literally the worst thing they could have done because he had inflamed bowels. And so to irritate them further by this stuff uh, didn't help. But the trouble was that this fellow Stevens, he was called in by the locals instead of a doctor because he wasn't a doctor, but he would give his advice more or less for free. And this is a time where you had to pay for a doctor to visit you. And if you couldn't pay, that's why you went to the hospital, because the hospitals were there for people who couldn't afford to have a doctor visit them. So um, this Stevens recommended giving the composition powder as an enema to get closer to the actual problem. And he added things like lobelia and valerian. So these are plant extracts, but they uh, increase the irritant um, powers of the composition powder. And essentially what happened is they just inflamed his bowel and intestines so much that that caused his death. Were they put on trial? Uh, Stevens was put on trial for manslaughter, yes, but he wasn't convicted. No. Um, but obviously it didn't put him in a very good light. The two medical men that were brought in to examine the body, I mean, they confirmed that these intestines and so on um, were really sort of swollen and, uh, and soft and pulpy, you know, whether they shouldn't have been. Yeah. But one of them, uh, it turns out, had a real downer on herbalism. And he'd been known to express these anti-herbalism opinions. And so Stevens was trying to argue in court, oh, well, you know, he's just pointing the finger at me because I'm a herbalist and all this stuff like that, you know. Um, but, of course, that didn't wash. No, but, I mean, in fairness, that was probably an accidental death, wasn't it? I don't think he was deliberately poisoned. Oh, no, he wasn't deliberately poisoned. Yeah. But it goes to show, again, how these substances that were readily available could actually lead to harm and indeed death because of ignorance because it was touted as a cure-all oh you've got something wrong with you have some composition powder and you know it, it could be well in this case it was fatal and certainly could be harmful david once again thank you very much i'll be very careful next time i have a chamomile tea or a peppermint tea i'll never quite look at it in the same way well, just examine the box to see where it says composition powder included. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Derek. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.